It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. Um, a great lineup today. It's going to be a little bit like a trip to the library. We have three authors back-to-back uh, coming up in the second hour. We're going to talk with uh, father-daughter authors, Bruce and Vernay Ewing, about their book, Coming Home. And then a little later, we're going to talk uh, with um, writer, poet, uh, Joan Gelfand about uh, presidential speech writing should be kind of interesting with the election tomorrow. But first, we're going to talk with um, an author who has uh, looked into something that most of us have probably, it's probably never even occurred to most of us. The name of the book is Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. And um, it's... uh, written by um, Angie Schmidt. She joins me by phone. Angie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Most of us, you know, have considered for a moment that, you know, there's such a thing as as hit-and-run fatalities uh, in the world, but an epidemic Yeah, so what the book's about is during the past 10 years, we've seen about a 50% increase in pedestrian deaths in the United States. We now have um, almost 6,500 people dying every year, being hit by cars and being killed. And what, what does that have to do with race and class? Yeah, well, um, it has a lot to do with inequality in the United States. So, um, Black people and Latinos are at increased risk of being killed this way, and um, so are Native Americans. So um, there's a number of reasons for that I sort of get into in the book. Um, But because of discrimination and the wealth gap, um, a lot of those groups are less likely to own cars in the first place, so more likely to be walking. But there's also um, some other factors, including... um, there's some discrimination about who receives funding for safety improvements in their neighborhoods. And a lot of times 
um, black and brown neighborhoods and lower income neighborhoods um, are sort of passed over for the kind of stuff they need, sidewalks, crosswalks, to keep themselves safe. And, and, you know, I understand there are some neighborhoods that don't have sidewalks and that has people walking in the streets very often. I've seen it in my own town. Um, but most of us think, you know, that, that the standard neighborhood has, you know, sidewalks and, and crosswalks. Is that just not universally true? Yeah, it's really not. Um, so a lot of older urban areas do, you know, have sidewalks on both sides. But some of the fastest growing parts of the United States, um, the Sun Belt region, for example, um, in Nashville, I think only 30%. So Nashville is a combined city-county region, but it's only it's a minority of the streets that have sidewalks on both sides. And that's pretty common um, throughout those uh, Sun Belt cities. Well, I, you know, I remember <clears throat> as a kid, um, you know, being taught to go up to the corner, stop, look both ways, cross the street, and that's that's not possible the same way if you don't have those crosswalks. How are they? How are they being passed over? I mean, how? Is this even conceivable that um, infrastructure would be built without those standard uh, accoutrements? Yeah, yeah. It's um, so the, the, there's sort of a problem in the engineering profession where um, the traffic engineering profession um, over the past several decades, pretty much since the 1940s in the United States, has really been geared almost entirely towards making it easy to get around in a car. And all um, the, the formulas they use to measure and the whole science is really geared towards um, reducing vehicle delay. I talk a lot about that in the book. <clears throat> the problem is we're sort of trading away other people's safety for these um, reductions in delay. So, like, for example, a lot of... Um, a lot of walk signals at crosswalks may be timed so that um, a fit middle-aged man can has enough time to cross the street, you know, at a brisk pace. But um, an older person or a person in a wheelchair or a child, uh Hello? I lost you there, Angie. Aha. Is that you, Angie? Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened. Stand by. Okay, I've got Angie back now. Hey, sorry about that. Hey, that's, that's okay. Thanks for calling right back. I appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> you were talking about how the timing of signals doesn't work for children and the elderly people in wheelchairs because they're they're too short in in time um, trying to make it so that cars don't have to wait as long right right 
Um, yeah, and it all goes back to sort of what our values are, and we've, we've really placed this really high emphasis on reducing vehicle delay compared to protecting people who are more vulnerable. How did this, um, how did this end up on your radar, Angie? Yeah, so um, I, for about nine years prior to this, was a writer and editor at this New York-based nonprofit called Streets Block, and we were reporting day in and day out on biking, walking, and transit issues, and we were trying to um, advocate for a, a less car-dependent sort of transportation system in the United States. Um, so I was doing reporting um, sort of across the United States about different issues, um, campaigns, you know, for sidewalks, campaigns for bike lanes, campaigns for better transit. Um, and about, you know, like I mentioned, since about 2009, there was a little bit of talk about this phenomenon where pedestrian deaths just started rising. And at first, um, even a lot of experts in traffic safety thought it was sort of um, an anomaly or just a fluke. But now we know that it's this sustained trend that has to do with a bunch of things outlined in the book. Well, how much, uh, how much of it is infrastructure and how much of it is distracted driving? Yeah, that's um, always one of people's top, when I talk to people about this, one of their top questions, you know, how much of it is smartphones and that kind of thing. And um, one thing about that we don't really know, we don't have very good data about how many crashes are caused by cell phone distraction because um, a lot of police, like um, there's accident report forms when, when a crash yeah. happens, and a lot of them don't even contain like a field where the, the police officer would know that there was, distraction involved. And a lot of times there isn't enough investigation into, you know, routine car crashes um, that they would even uncover that. And people usually who are distracted aren't very forthcoming about it. But um, one thing to note is that uh, in a lot of other countries, in a lot of sort of peer nations, where they also have very wide smartphone adoption, they have not seen the same trend where pedestrian deaths have sort of exploded. In Canada, they're, they're sort of flat or declining and um, the same for a lot of Europe. Um, do they do things differently in, uh, in Canada with regard to the length of uh, crosswalks and so on? They do. They do do a little bit better job on the infrastructure in Canada. They also have stricter... They have a little bit stricter regulations in the United States, just um, sort of across the board. We're pretty, the, culturally in the United States, we're pretty lax about traffic safety. We actually have about twice as many traffic fatalities in the United States per capita as they do in Canada. So we managed to do twice as badly and lose twice as many lives. And if we could um, match Canada's traffic safety record, we would save about 20,000 lives every year in the United States. Um, what are some of the, some of the steps that need to be taken to improve infrastructure and, and will it be affected by, um, what happens with, uh, driverless vehicles? 
Yeah, so one thing that um, hasn't come up in this interview but that's really important is we know that one of the major reasons that pedestrian deaths have been growing so much is because Americans have been switching from driving sedans to SUVs. Um, there's been this real explosion compared to about, compared to um, the year 2012. Um, in that year, about 75% of new um, vehicles sold in the United States were sedans. Now we're seeing the exact opposite. Um, about 75% of new vehicles being sold in the latest model year were trucks, pickup trucks, SUVs, or crossovers. So we've had this huge reversal um, in the vehicle fleet in the United States. And it turns out that we, we know um, there's a very strong scientific evidence that SUVs are a lot more dangerous to pedestrians. Um, they hit pedestrians higher on the body. So like while a smaller um, sedan might hit you sort of in the legs where obviously that can cause a lot of trouble for you, but that's less likely to be fatal than being hit sort of in the abdomen and the chest where some of these taller vehicles hit people. Um, so there's some data from the Federal Highway Administration that shows um, pe people who are hit by SUVs are two and a half to three times more likely to be killed than people who are hit by sedans. Is it? Um, so I just wanted to... Is it sorry, harder to see pedestrians? So, yes, especially um, some of these pickup trucks have gotten so, so enormous that they produce enormous blind spots in the front and the back. And that can be especially dangerous for children. Um, and those backover crashes are just terrible. Um, in the United States, this is hard to believe, but it's true. Um, about 50 children are backed over, most of them in their own driveways by their own family members every week in the United States because of these big blind zones at the back and to some extent the front of these vehicles. That's hard to, that's, that's hard to even fathom. Yeah, it's really tragic, and it should start to get better because in 2018, the federal government, we have, um, we have this agency called NHTSA that regulates, um, they do vehicle safety regulations. So they require things like seat belts and anti-lock brakes. And finally in 2018, they required backup cameras and for that reason. So we should start to eventually start to see those kind of crashes be reduced. Um, but um, so back to your question about AVs, autonomous vehicles, I mean, um, I, I think a lot of people are have become pretty skeptical that we're going to have truly autonomous vehicles anytime soon, if at all. Like the experts I interviewed in my book, um, both of them said they didn't they didn't think it was going to happen um, at all ever <clears throat> that we wouldn't see fully autonomous vehicles. But I am sort of excited about some semi-autonomous features that are already coming in coming standard and especially some of the higher-end cars. Angie, um, I, I hate to interrupt, but can we put a comma yeah. there? I have to go to a break. But uh, yeah, can you I'm stick sorry. around for a few minutes and we'll, and we'll yeah. pick it up there when we come back? If you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise. <clears throat> excuse me, or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have a few messages as well. My guest is Angie Sh uh, Schmidt, the author of Right of Way. We'll be back with more right after this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad America, Council. your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in checker money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a book called uh, Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. She is uh, journalist Angie Schmidt, and she joins me by phone. Angie, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, just before we went to break, I, I had to cut you off a little bit. We were talking about whether or not autonomous vehicles would have an impact on making things safer for pedestrians. Um, and and you yeah. were saying you didn't think that was as real as we like to think. Yeah, there's a lot of skepticism from the people I, I sort of trust about that. But um, what is kind of exciting is we do have these partially automated features that um, assist with driving coming starting to become standard in a lot of cars. And that's things like automatic emergency braking. So your car will just automatically brake before it hits something with that feature if it performs properly. Or automatic pedestrian detection. A lot of um, automakers offer that now, especially in high-end vehicles. So I think that there's a lot of potential with those. Um, there's a lot of data that shows automatic emergency braking really helps across a range of things, including with pedestrian collisions. And there was a study um, done by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety that found um, some Subaru cars that came with a package of these partially automated features um, reduced the number of insurance claims for pedestrian collisions about 35%. So there is a lot of potential that those kind of technologies could help, in my opinion. Well, that's nice with new cars coming out, but a lot of people don't drive new cars. How long will it be before, you know, we see um, a real saturation of those features? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And another problem is that um, the federal government has not required them. So, um, you know, you can opt for those or not. And so some automakers have started to make this standard, but not all of them. And until we get regulations requiring them, um, there may be a slower uptake. So um, it takes about 11 years for the entire vehicle fleet to turn over in the United States, unless there's policies that you, you can potentially have policies that try to make it turn over faster for different reasons, uh, like the clash, um, cash for clunkers program. But um, but yeah, that's one of the reasons we're seeing this big increase, even though we have these promising technologies starting to come online. They're only in, you know, a small number of vehicles right now. And you sort of indicate that, um, that there's a lack of infrastructure to support people who rely on walking and public transit. Um, that affects lower-income people who increasingly live in suburbs. Is good infrastructure or more safe infrastructure more likely to be in cities proper and less uh, likely to be in suburbs? Yeah, yeah, for the most part, yeah. Um, there's been this, I think a lot of people have heard about this phenomenon called the suburbanization of poverty, and it's happening across the United States. Um, now, like, um, the, in the last 10 years, there was more growth in poverty in the suburbs than in 
urban areas. So there was a higher increase of people living in poverty in suburbs than in urban areas. So that's a big change. And a lot of suburbs, it, it depends, you know, they're in some cities, some of the closer set suburbs, like where I live in Cleveland, you know, are from the streetcar era and are pretty walkable and pretty, um, they have a good amount of amenities. But as some of the newer suburbs and in the Sun Belt region that's so dangerous, they can be really terrifying. In, in states like Florida, um, people are walking along or waiting for the bus along seven or eight lane arterial roads that have speeds as high as 40 or 45 miles per hour, and those are very, very deadly. And, and this is true even more so probably of rural areas. Um. Yes, but we don't we don't see a whole lot of pedestrians in rural areas. So rural roads, yes, can be very dangerous, but um, generally that's not where most people are walking. So, if what are the steps that really need to be taken um, in in order to address this? Is it education is it um, committing to better infrastructure what 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 steps need to be taken to reduce the number of pedestrian deaths yeah so um, one thing is um, we in the United States we've never so we have all this vehicle regulation for safety but it's always protected the people inside of the vehicles so like I mentioned things like seat belts things like anti-lock brakes um, and airbags but there's never been any vehicle regulations to protect people outside of cars. Um, there's a lot of, we could do the same sort of things that we've done to the inside of cars to kind of cushion the blow for people who get hit, whether they're walking or biking or in a wheelchair. Um, so we need action from the federal government on, on that front. And that that's um, something that can have a big impact. In addition, we sort of... Um, we sort of need a reframing of the problem. I, I think like the reason that we, we've, we've been very accepting of these kind of deaths when they occur and we tend to sort of blame the victim. So if someone is hit, we, we'll be like, there's often a note in the publication that reports on it that says they weren't in a crosswalk. So sort of it was their fault. And never questioning, you know, was there a crosswalk nearby? Um, was the place they were crossing well lit enough? That kind of thing. Were, were there um, curb ramps where they needed to be? So there does need to be a change sort of in our values. And we've been so focused on like adding roads and adding auto capacity. We need to go back and make some fill in the safety gaps on the roads that we've already built. And that will take sort of a um, uh, philosophical change sort of in the engineering profession. But I, I do think that's already a little bit underway. Um, well, let me ask this one. When I, when I w was learning to drive, which was way back in the olden days, um, I was taught that pedestrians have the right of way. Has that changed? I, I don't think, um, yeah, I was too. <laughs> I don't think that the laws are very well understood by drivers, and I don't think that the safety agencies have done a good, good enough job reminding drivers of their responsibilities to pedestrians because pedestrians really are sort of powerless in any interaction with a, a driver because obviously, you know, you're in a big metal machine that could potentially kill someone 
um, that sort of gives you the upper hand in any interaction. And of course, you know, many people don't use their vehicles to bully pedestrians, um, but a lot do. And there really isn't any, um, there's no like negative feedback mechanism. Um, people don't generally, um, there's no punishment for not yielding at crosswalks if you get my drift. And as people get bigger and bigger cars, I think that makes them even less likely to um, interact with pedestrians in a way that's sort of more on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of a long-winded explanation, but I do think we've gotten away from that, definitely. And um, even even now we're seeing a lot of um, vehicular attacks, really, in, on um, protesters in different cities and people's attitude. A lot of people is like, well, if someone stands in front of my car, I sort of have a right to run them over, um, which is all very sad and upsetting, I think. And I keep thinking as we're talking, um, Angie, that there are these these wonderful ad campaigns and bumper stickers and and all kinds of things for drivers to look out for motorcyclists right you know that you know because they can easily become uh, they can easily creep up in a blind spot and and it's uh, sometimes difficult to see them so there's there's this sense that we have to be on the lookout for them why don't we have something similar for pedestrians Right, yeah, we do need that kind of thing. People we do a little bit when school starts. Yeah, but even then, like, I, I report there's, there's, I think that um, the safety officials, they sort of don't want to, um, drivers are such a more kind of a politically powerful group, especially in a place like where we live in the Midwest. Almost everyone who's a dri- is a driver and almost everyone who's in a position of influence sort of, um, you know, people in government and politics, they're almost all drivers. And so I think that they're sort of afraid to um, set sort of a a strict standard for them. And that we've sort of, we've, we've, we're sort of failing pedestrians, I think. It's it's a little bit, it's a little bit cruel sometimes. Like, um, in my book, I talk about how, um, a lot of safety officials, even after, like, there'll be a couple of pedestrian deaths or crashes and there'll be a news story, and they'll sort of reprimand pedestrians. Even even some of the cases will be hit and runs, and they'll tell pedestrians, like, even if you do have the right-of-way, you cannot count on being safe, and you need to make eye contact with all the drivers. And they never say to the drivers, like, hey, you're, it's your responsibility to yield. Pedestrians are very vulnerable. Instead, they tell pedestrians to go above and beyond what is legally required. And I think it has to do a little bit with just how, the way power and privilege operate sort of in our culture. And the power and the privilege really belongs with the drivers. Now, I've been reading that that, uh, that younger people now are less likely to want to get a driver's license and less likely to want to drive cars, more apt to walk, to live inner city, to um, use public transportation, and so on. Is there a chance that that shifts generationally? 
Yeah, there was. There's been a lot of talk about that, and I think that 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 is true. That there is um, less sort of infatuation with driving among younger people, and we have seen um, in a lot of cities um, some sort of gentrification, some um, increase in younger folks, well-to-do folks living in cities. But I do think that that's a real phenomenon. But on the other hand, our, the way we design our infrastructure hasn't changed very much. And most young people live in uh, in suburbs and instead of in center cities where they have a lot of good transit access and that kind of thing. So the infrastructure really is the key determinant. Even if a younger person would love to uh, avoid the expense of having a car and take the bus more. If they live in an area where the bus only comes once an hour and it's not, the bus stop isn't safe or nearby or convenient, you know, it's not, it's just not very practical, practical for them. So we haven't seen as much of a change really in how young people get around, even though there is this um, evidence that there's been a change in attitude. Why is it that, that, indigenous men are four times more likely to be killed while walking than the general population? Yeah, good question. So I don't, I, I can't fully explain it, but one thing I talk about in my book is, so um, people who are living uh, in tribal lands and reservations, um, those, those areas, uh, there's a lot of walking that takes place there. It's sort of like a traditional village. A lot more walking than you typically see in a rural area. Usually those are located in a rural area. Um, so uh, you you have like a, a sort of a walkable village type setting a lot of times. Uh, and it's, it's in the middle of a rural area where all the roads are, you know, very fast, highway-like roads. And oftentimes there hasn't been enough accommodation and um, there's, there's a really interesting study that I talk about, and it gets a little bit about how racial bias and racism can play into this. Um, they interviewed people from these tribal lands and reservations, and they were all saying pedestrian safety, we know it's a huge problem. Um, it was their top, it was basically their top transportation-related concern. But they also interviewed people from the state DOT. This is in Minnesota. And um, the people from the state DOT, which is mostly like white white men, you know, not people from who grew up in reservations, um, they they would almost never bring up pedestrian safety. And even when they were pressed about it, they sort of defaulted to these behavioral explanations, like drunk walking, that sort of put the blame back on the people that were being hurt and killed. So I think there was like a, a cultural rift um, there, and it has a little bit to do with you know, again, privilege of the people who are in the position to implement the reforms and also not enough respect for sort of um, local knowledge. Is is there a sense that, um, I, I keep hearing a, a recurring theme, like we tend to dismiss it because uh, someone says, well, a young child darted out in front of the car. You know, I didn't have any warning. Mm -hmm. Or somebody, yeah. as you just mentioned, was drunk walking and, <clears throat> and, and staggered in front of a car unexpectedly. Um, is, is that what makes it dismissible by really kind of most of us? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think, yes, the stories we tell ourselves about why this happened 
absolutely affects the way we respond. And the way that we usually construct the stories in our culture is just like, well, let's, we'll, we'll try to put the blame on someone who is involved. So if there is a wreck and someone's killed, either the, the way we would typically frame it, either the driver or the pedestrian would be responsible. And a lot of times we're sort of biased against the pedestrian because most of us are drivers, um, that kind of thing. So if the driver is drunk or does do a hit and run, then they, they're generally blamed. But, um, you know, a pedestrian, if they're not in a crosswalk, that's often used to sort of cast blame on them. And then everyone sort of shrugs their shoulders and says, well, they weren't in a crosswalk, so they sort of deserved it, is sort of the subtext, which is which is sort of cruel if you think about it. Because, I mean, jaywalking is such a minor infraction. Who hasn't jaywalked, you know? And a lot of times jaywalking is rational. Like if you're on a empty street and you can see that it's safe to cross, I mean, I, I know that I do it. I don't follow that rule all the time. Yeah, if I leave a store, if I leave a store and the restaurant I want to go to is directly across the street, wherever I am in the block, that's where I'm going to cross. Right, and a lot of times, like in a lot of cities and a lot of these Sunbelt cities, and when I'm investigating these cases that where someone was killed, you look at where they're killed, and the closest crosswalk is a third of a mile away. So you're asking someone, like I'm looking at this victim who's an 80-year-old man, you're asking an 80-year-old man to walk two-thirds of a mile out of his way to cross the road? That's just not a reasonable thing to ask an 80-year-old person to do. But then if they do get killed, they get blamed, and there's no wider discussion about, okay, what what is the um, setting they were killed in? And was it was it hostile to people who were trying to walk? Was it hostile to an older person like that? And um, a lot of times, like, the, the reporters never dig into that, and we miss an opportunity to look at sort of the systemic causes because it really is a problem. It, it really is a problem with systemic causes. It doesn't happen at random. Pedestrian deaths happen in patterns, usually, like, in a lot of cities, um, like in Philadelphia, for example, and in Rockford, Illinois, about a quarter of all the pedestrian deaths occur on a single road. And that's not unusual. Usually in every city, there'll be a few streets that where a wildly disproportionate share of these kind of crashes and deaths happen. And what that tells us is that there's some environmental issues that contribute to it. It's not just um, the way people behave. And and you talk about uh, infrastructure and, and conditions, environment being um, pedestrian hostile. But is it hostility toward pedestrians or is it just overly car friendly? Yeah, it's sort of one and the same. I think like a lot of times they didn't set out to the, the designers of the road, it's usually traffic engineers. They didn't, and they usually do it without much of any public input. So they're making these decisions kind of unilaterally. Um, but usually, they they do set out to, and they may hear a lot from drivers complaining about you know um, traffic lights or congestion, whatnot. But um, they may never experience the road for themselves, especially if they're well-to-do, you know, if they own a car. They may never experience the road for themselves as someone who has to wait for the bus with two young children um, and that kind of thing. And uh, I think a lot of engineers have sort of, they've the way that they've rationalized this is that, well, if very few pedestrians are using the road, they're sort of not worth accommodating. But that's very dangerous because... Um, 
everywhere, pretty much everywhere where there's destinations, especially like commercial businesses um, and um, housing, especially low-income housing, people will try to access by foot and bike. Um, and if, if the conditions are dangerous, it's just a matter of time before someone gets hurt or killed. Well, this is um, this is fascinating, and I had never really considered uh, pedestrian deaths to be an epidemic. I that's um, this is this is brand new information for me, Angie. So I'm a little uh, a little off my my game here because it just had never occurred to me, and it's a, a fascinating subject. The book is called right of way race class and the silent epidemic of pedestrian deaths in america um angie uh, what are you working on next yeah so um i launched a consulting firm a few months ago and so i'm still doing some writing here and there but i'm trying to now i'm just trying to think about ways that um I can help with the problem, you know, in a practical sense, sort of on the ground. So I want to get involved with one of the things I want to do is um, called pedestrian safety audits. And that's a really neat process, I think, where basically um, in a community, they might identify a road that's a little bit dangerous. And you bring together like a lot of stakeholders, maybe the chief of police would be there, you know, the head of public works. Um, some city council people, and what you do is you walk the road together and you sort of see what it feels like to experience it on foot. And you also interview some people who use the road and ask them, you know, what what are sort of the safety issues? And then the idea is to go back and sort of, once the safety issues have been identified, go back and sort of fix them. And um, different studies have shown it has like a 10 to 1 return on investment. So I think... Um, sort of those small-scale interventions have been considered a little bit unsexy. You know, we like to do a big project and cut the ribbon, but I think those kind of things, A, um, they can, you know, have a huge impact on someone's life, and B, they can really improve quality of life, too. If, if more of us could do a little bit more walking or let our kids walk to school, that would be a big quality of life improvement, I think. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and of course about what we've been talking about the great place to start there is with the book right of way race class and the silent epidemic of pedestrian deaths in america but angie do you have a website yeah so um the name of my firm is 3mph planning and consulting and um the website is 3mphplanning.com and I'm also on Twitter. My handle is it's sort of embarrassing, but it's Schmange, S-C-H-M-A-N-G-E. So I'm sharing, I'm sharing stuff um, and articles, you know, every day there as well. Well, Angie, thank you so much for uh, sharing this information with me this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. That was uh, journalist Angie Schmidt, author of uh, Right of Way, Race, Class, and the Silent Epidemic of Pedestrian Deaths in America. And uh, we're going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint, squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then uh, 
We'll be back with uh, more of the Tom Sumner program. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We shall return. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place 
where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. I entered the service after I graduated high school because the dropouts already had the jobs. And uh, I came out of the service and... Thank you. I came out of the service and I entered Temple University, 1960, physical education major. I hear you laughing. You know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people laugh at physical education. Ah oh, ha, phys ed, you're dumb, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, I was pretty smart and uh, I, I got this girlfriend. I, I met this girl, very brilliant girl. I had uh, an IQ of about 300. Thousand, 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 three hundred thousand IQ. Got a philosophy major, man. Oh, she was fantastic. Used to walk around the house saying, why is there air? (laughs) And I used to look at it. Any phys ed major knows why there's air. There's air to blow up volleyballs, blow up basketballs. You guys called me dumb for crying out loud. Walking around asking why there's air. But anyway, that's the thing to do when you're a freshman. Get yourself a brilliant girl to take care of you. She used to dress up like me and take my exams and everything. It's really beautiful. I bought a 1942 Dodge for $75, my whole life savings from the service. And uh, I used to drive from her house. I lived in Philadelphia. I used to drive to Trenton, 40-mile drive. And uh, it was during the winter time, and when I bought the car, it had four, four bolt-headed tires. So I went out, and with the last couple of dollars I had, I bought a snow tire, and I put it on the right rear, and about 75 sandbags, you know, for traction, in case I get into some snow or ice or something, you know, just dig right in on that right side, and the car would raise up on that one wheel. And, <laughs> and I wrote Captain America on the side, because... Uh, it was a beautiful car, man. He used to, it wouldn't go over 50. You go 51 and say, hey, cut it out. It's the kind of car I had, man. Beautiful. And uh, I used to drive to her house and get to her house around 4 in the afternoon. And her parents, uh, I think her parents wanted to get rid of her because as soon as I get there, they go upstairs. You know, and take the dog with them, too, you know. They had one of these little dogs. They were very wealthy people. They had one of these little dogs in a house, about a 37,000 room house. And they had a dog was as big as my fist, you know, and for protection. You know, I said, well, people are kooky, man. Now in Greenwich Village, I used to live in Greenwich Village, a guy with a one room apartment and, and he had to use somebody else's bathroom would have a dog that's as big as a Mack truck. You know, like the dog would command him, I must go. You know? and he had to take the dog out, man. He couldn't spank it, you know. He hit that dog, the dog would eat him alive, you know. Hey, listen, that's where I got, we got our Doberman from an old used master that they ate up. And these people with this big house got this dog so small. You know, what, what 
protection is it? You put your leg through through the window. The, I know what it'll do. It'll pee all over the place. That's all. That's all they ever do, man. You, you come into anybody's house and say, "Ah, the one of those dogs." They poop all over everybody. Man. I guess maybe that's the safety device, right? You feel something. Hey, somebody's in the house. My legs. Are, yeah. Ridiculous. Well, anyhow. I used to sit there and uh, we would do about three minutes worth of homework and then we would cuddle up and start kissing. Oh, we would kiss for 12 hours, man. Just kiss everywhere. Kiss on the sofa, move to the TV set, kiss up on the whatnot shelf, you know, underneath the refrigerator, all over the place. We're just kissing. You kiss so long until the inside of the mouth gets raw, you know, and your lips swell up and you say, listen, I think we better cut it out, all right? But tell you what, first one heals call, all right? So I get in the old Captain America car, you know, and I'm driving. And the whole time we were kissing, it snowed and the hail fell and everything, and the roads just, whew, the roads were frozen. So I'm driving, and very sleepy, and I get so sleepy that I go into a world of fantasy, you know. I just, I'm really tired. I would like to sleep now. I had another hour and a half drive, and it's ridiculous. And, well, listen, you take a little nap if you want. Are you kidding? Well, look, uh, the road's going straight, and right now I got the car pointed straight. I don't see why I can't take a little nap right now. I better not do it. A leaf blew in front of the car. Oh, I've hit a cow. I, yeah. Oh, I'm driving. And I'll never forget it. I took it up to 50. I was living dangerously, you know. And uh, I went into a bad right skid. Whack! And as soon as I went into the skid, I tried to remember the safe driving manual, you know, to save your life. If you go into a skid, the safe driving manual says, if you go into a skid, turn in the direction of the skid. Which doesn't make sense at all to me, because that's like if a guy throws a left hook at you, you lean into it, you know. <laughs> Forget it, I'm turning left and hitting the brake. What? Wound up going down the road, 50 miles an hour, sideways. Which is a beautiful sight, by the way. You look out your front window and you see things going by like this, you know. And if you want, you just turn right around. You don't have to steer. Just look out the side door. You know? And if you have an accident, you can get out in a hurry, man. It can't hurt you. I love it. Like, they ever build cars like that. And I hit a tree. <laughs> I remember I'm in trouble because in my glove compartment I've got 10 old moving violation tickets which are like savings bonds. The longer you keep them, the greater they mature, you know. And I figure I owe the city about $2 million. I know they're going to throw me in jail for life. So I push the car away from the tree and I try and move it. And it won't move it at all because the A-frame has fallen out, see. Well, I didn't know what an A-frame was until I took it to a mechanic and, you know, oh, your A-frame's falling out. Cost you a million dollars. And that's the labor, you know, that kind of... So I'm trying to move, wah, 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 and, it won't, and I'm scared because the cops are gonna catch me. I gotta get out of here somehow, you know. Up comes the safety for all truck driver, gets it out of the car, I didn't even ask him to help me. Starts to put 20 flares around the car. What the hell do you think, this is my birthday or something? <laughs> Have you ever tried to blow out a flare? <laughs> no, I'm sore on the outside and the inside, you know. All right, now the beautiful thing are the, are the cops here coming, and they get out and they look at the thing, and the motor's in the front seat, trees leaning on a 45 degree angle, box all chewed out of it, and uh, the tires are all flat, and uh, 20 flares around the car, and this guy says, What happened? 
I said, well, I was driving along and uh, this tree jumped right out of the forest and bit my car, boy. They'd ask you that, no matter what, you could run over a guy and leave him under the car. And the guy's, all right, what happened? Here? Oh, well, the guy was sleeping and he was cold and I had nothing to cover him up, so I figured I'd use the car, you know. I'm protecting from something. Ridiculous, boy. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. I remember the night mom was pounding on her drums. She called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up. Pretty soon you're gonna drive. And daddy heard the commotion and came, came in tap dancing, playing his six string. And they both looked at me and they said, son, before you get behind the wheel of a car, you listen to me. If you're texting while you steer, don't drive. If you've been drinking beer, don't drive. If you're talking on the phone, don't drive. If your tires are bald and it's starting to snow. Don't drive. If your foot can't reach the pedal. Don't drive. If you're wearing no apparel. Don't drive. If you took an illegal prescription. Don't drive. And no one understands your diction. Don't drive. Don't speed, don't read, don't breathe, don't tweet, don't shave, don't rave, don't wave, don't eat. And don't put no makeup on or shave. You know you're not supposed to do that. If you gotta do something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my blue suede shoes Ah, go ahead and scuff them up If you're driving with your knees Don't drive If while you roll you eat Don't drive If you don't know how to drive Don't drive If you've been psychedelicized Don't drive If you're kissing on your boo Who's kissing on you? Don't drive. If you've been drinking at a bar. Don't drive. If there's guns in the car. Don't drive. Don't groom, don't shave, don't tweeze, don't nurse, don't voice these things in your ears or rummage through your purse. Ugh. Don't do that. Huh. If you won't do something you're not supposed to do, you can go ahead and talk on my food man chew. Go ahead, I don't care. Watch me tear. If you feel like a nap. Don't drive If there's a pooch on your lap. Oh, it's dangerous and creepy. If you're feeling really wired. If your license is expired. Don't you drive around the town. Something you're not supposed to do You can go ahead and step on my blues way shoes Scuff them up Then go ahead and pull on my Fu Manchu Yeah If you want to do something You want to do something that's good If you're feeling like any of that stuff Don't drive Make sure you got a clear head Ow Ugh. Sick 
Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots get off of my lawn We're trying to do a radio show down here It's a Tom Sumner program Don't you know Go on Go on get out of here 